industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, September 18th, and we're talking about a recent IPO that has not gotten enough attention, JFrog. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's chief curator of cautious, continuous compounding, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how's it going? Dylan, we have been incredibly spoiled with the number of IPOs that are actually worth talking about over the last two months, and we have yet another one today that is worth a look. You know, it's remarkable because you would think, you know, if I were to tell you maybe eight months ago, hey, uh, we're going to be in wildly uncertain times. Uh, there are going to be some serious whipsaws happening in the market. There's going to be a lot of unemployment. Do you think a lot of companies are going to be going public? <laughs> You'd probably say, eh, maybe not. There's probably going to be some people sitting on the sidelines waiting for things to stabilize. And yet we've seen some very quality businesses come out. Yeah, and this company we're going to talk about today, JFrog, one that I'd never heard of before till I looked at the uh, the S1. I did hear some buzz about it from some people I respect on Twitter. When you look at this company, I understand why it's something that has caught a lot of smart people's attention. Yeah, and, and it's a it's a business that needs some explanation, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that. Uh, and it's possible even if you were following the news this week that you might have missed this one because Snowflake got all the attention. Uh, it was kind of the darling IPO uh, to date, and we'll touch on that because we did that perspective show a little while ago on that business. But we're gonna start out talking about JFrog. Uh, just came public same day as, as Snowflake, kind of two parties on the same day type situation. Thankfully, both of them are well attended. Brian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, JFrog, which is tipper symbol F-R-O-G, they had a, you could say, successful uh, IPO. Uh, they priced at $44 per share. The company raised a net of $480 million. Of note to me, uh, about three quarters of that went to the company. So the company added $327 million to its balance sheet. $146 million of that went to insiders that were looking for an exit at the IPO price. So again, they came public at 44. That's where they priced. That same day, they reached a peak of $77 per share before settling at 64. So while Snow caught all the media attention and so many people are paying attention to it, JFrog did have a successful outing. Although it depends on your view, just like with Snowflake, you could have argued, boy, the banker screwed up here and they, they underpriced it. Yeah, and actually, we can we can talk about that a little bit later with Snowflake because I have some comments from their CEO related to that. But um, at least at this one, you know, where the price ultimately settled is fairly close. You know, there's a premium that was that was out there they might have been able to capture. The pricing on IPOs is difficult, but they got a lot closer to what the market was willing to give them than Snowflake did. Yeah, they, uh, they certainly did. Uh, but this is a this is a fascinating business. When you dig into it, it is definitely worth getting to know. And the market valuation is somewhere around six billion dollars, so less than a tenth of the market cap of uh, of Snowflake. <laughs> I wonder if we, they're always going to suffer from that comparison, or if we'll get to a <laughs> point where they're like, you know what, these are two businesses. They're both great businesses. We're just going to let them go. Um, we'll have to see. But but uh, this company's actually been around for a while. Um, they've been around for over ten years, and and I think what we need to do up front here is basically to find just who they are and what they do, because this is a little different than our standard software business. Yeah, some software businesses are consumer facing and we can see them, we can understand them. 
other software businesses are, 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 are designed to meet the needs of other software developers. And understanding how those businesses work and what they do is really hard. In a way, this reminds me of Twilio. Twilio is a company that's been phenomenally successful, but their market is other software uh, developers. The same thing is happening with JFrog. So JFrog was founded in 2009 by three uh, uh, co-founders. Um, the company wanted to is is aimed at addressing the the problem of software updates. I think that most people are aware that historically software updates always came out version 1.0, version 2.0, version 3.0. Prior uh, before the advent of the internet and the cloud you had to manually update them. You had to put a new CD <laughs> into your computer and you had to overwrite the existing program and create a new one. Software has, the, the, the pace of innovation in the software market has exploded. And I love this quote on their site. They say, users now expect their software to update continuously, non-intrusively, and without them even knowing. When you wake up in the morning, you expect that your iPhone will basically have the latest and greatest software on it and all the apps on the iPhone will instantly work. When you log into uh, Gmail or anything in the cloud, you just expect that you are going to be automatically um, on the latest uh, version without having to do anything. That is what JFrog enables. Yeah, and, and I think it's tempting when we talk about the cloud to really fixate on the big cloud providers, You know, the, the people that provide infrastructure. And I think what JFrog is really good at illustrating is the, the cloud has created a huge space for a lot of businesses to operate. And, and I don't know that this model would work in a world that doesn't have the cloud because we wouldn't have this continuous software upgrade cycle. Uh, people would just be shipped their CDs. Yeah. That has definitely some, it took vision to see this as an idea uh, 11 years ago when the company came out with this. And they, they called this idea uh, liquid software. The idea being the best version is no version. It's continually being updated. When a developer has a new idea, a bug fix or whatever, they don't want that to be the next version release. They want that to be instantaneously pushed out to all users at the same time. They want it to be verified and they want it to just work. So this software makes uh, developers' lives easier. And what's fascinating about this is that it works uh, both on-premise in a hybrid model where some is on-premise and some is in the cloud, or 100% natively in the cloud. It works with Azure, it works with AWS, and it works with Google Cloud. So if you're a developer and you go with JFrog, you don't have to, uh, you, 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 are, you have plenty of options ahead of time. <laughs> I like your comparison to Twilio because uh, Twilio has been a wildly successful company to own. Um, it is also one of those sneaky businesses that you don't even realize that you're interacting with most of the time uh, because it is under the hood, because it is such a developer platform. Um, and those businesses, while Twilio has shown they can be very successful, are very hard for the average person to really understand and really understand the value proposition behind. It, re it, really, it really is. And when I was digging into the details of this company, one thing that I always like to see is some other company validating that, yes, this is the real deal. And when we go through their customer list, when we go through their partners, when we go through the people that they have uh, chosen to integrate into their ecosystem, it just becomes super clear that these guys are the pioneer and they are the industry standard. And when you're looking from the outside, that's what I like to see. I like to see that the financials are, are backing up what the company says and, uh, and some of the big tech players are, are validating it too. <laughs> the test is basically, do others 
smart people think that this thing works? <laughs> if the answer is yes, then I'm willing to go along with it. And I mean, that's that's part of understanding what you know and what you don't know, because there are some really great businesses out there that operate on the fringes of my tech knowledge. And, and that's where, you know, having conversations with folks like Tim Byers and Tim White can be so helpful. Yeah, it's it, it exactly. Uh, some of the details here really matter. And when you see that uh, Microsoft's a customer, uh, Google uh, is a customer, Amazon is a customer. In fact, all 10 of the biggest 10 tech companies on earth are customers. Clearly, they're doing something right. Yeah, those are some big endorsements. And they've had some pretty big names for a while. I think even when they were doing some of their early series uh funding rounds, they were able to have some pretty big names, the likes of Netflix and and some other pretty big tech names on there. So clearly, a lot of people believe in this platform, even though it is early days, and they still have quite a bit to prove. Yeah. And again, it reminds me here, I think the comparison to Twilio uh, is really good. Twilio excels at creating APIs that enable communication. Uh, it's much easier for even big tech companies like uh, Facebook to buy from Twi- to buy from a company like Twilio rather than develop the tools themselves. The same thing I think can be said uh, of JFrog, where big companies are clearly saying, we have the resources to develop this technology, but it's easier and simpler to buy from a company like uh, a JFrog. They're hyper-focused on this one thing and doing this thing well uh, has really paid off. Yeah. And, and I mean, there are a lot of reasons why those things also make more sense. The interoperability of those types of things is often better than whatever you will make at home. You know, uh, <laughs> if a lot of companies are using the same thing, chances are uh, it is going to play nice with other people's tech, which is always helpful as well. And that's exactly what we see. The JFrog is basically says, we don't care what dev- what uh, what program language you're using. We don't care what platform you're using to develop. We don't care if you want to go on-premise, off-premise, in the cloud. We want to be Switzerland. Whatever software you want to use, we want to enable you to uh, get get the most recent version out to all of your users instantaneously. Yeah. And, and that's that's a proven model. I mean, I, I think that's exactly what we said about Snowflake as well, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> to draw another comparison. Um, are there are there any other core things that you want to hit when we're talking about kind of the product and what they do? I think that I think that we'll leave it right there, but essentially it's it's a tough thing to really grab your uh, ra- grasp your head around exactly what the company does, but you just have to focus on they enable continuous software uh, updates and they have clearly won over uh, developers and IT professionals globally. Yeah. And uh, Brian's on the show, so you know what's coming when it comes to the business model. This is a SaaS company. Um, They wind up, you know, having a lot of the attributes when we start to look at the books and we start to look at how they do what they do uh, that feel very SaaS-like, Brian. Yeah. They are a pure play SaaS company, uh, they, and they are deploying a freemium business model. So you, uh, developers can download a trial version of their software uh, right from uh, day one, give it, a tr- give it a try, bring it into their system, see if it works out from there. From there, they have a tiered uh, subscription model where enterprises can move upstream to bigger and bigger packages depending on their needs. When you look at the company's uh, revenue and their company's ability to attract more than 5,800 customers, clearly the strategy is working. Yeah. And uh, they're seeing some pretty high growth rates. We're working on some small numbers when it comes to the top line, but uh, 50% growth in the first half of 2020 put them just about $70 million. And that software number, you love to see 81% gross margins. Um, This is obviously a business that is going to produce a lot of profits once it hits a pretty big scale. It's just a matter of getting there. 
high, high, high revenue growth. So for the first half of 2020, so again, the first six months of the year, that's the period that we're looking at, uh, almost $70 million in total revenue. That was up 50%, 81% gross margin, really strong. The surprising number to me, Dylan, was that net loss over the first six months of the period $400,000. So this is a company that is extraordinarily close to profitability already. And even more important to me is they've been free cash flow positive for five years. I love this stat that they called out in their S1. They said, since our founding, we had raised a total of $162 million in capital. That was prior to coming a public. And yet, prior to coming public, $171 million in cash on their balance sheet. So they have raised little capital and they have, they basically have retained all of their capital. The reason they can do that is they have an efficient business model that pumps out free cash flow. Well, you mentioned that they were almost profitable in the first half of 2020. Their most recent quarter, they actually posted a profit, which is pretty incredible for a business that is this early on, uh, especially when you look at the, the revenue base that they're working off of. You know, I, I expect them to still be in that hyper growth mode. So for them to be showing profits this early is surprising. Big part of that is the customers that they bring on seem to like the product and they seem to stick around. Yeah. Uh, this company has a history of getting them in uh, with their core product and then upselling them over time to to more products. So they have uh, they have developed, for example, security tools. They have something they they have developed something they call mission control, which allows for uh, the control and monitoring of the entire process and feedback and analytics. Because of that, we see a really really impressive dollar based net retention rate. Remember, retention that's the good one. That's the one that includes churn uh, in the first half of the year. In the first half of 2020, 139%. Translation, 39% revenue growth without taking on any new customers. Awesome. That's awesome. And and they were able to still continue to post pretty impressive numbers even with COVID. And I think it's kind of a testament to the fact that they have a very happy customer base. Uh, you know, this is a period where sometimes you get to benefit from accelerating some trends uh, if, if you're a software player. Sometimes Budgets are a little bit stricter because businesses are scaling back a little bit. But when they have such delighted customers, it means that even as you're trying to weather these periods, you're still going to wind up putting up some pretty decent numbers. And that's exactly what they've done. Yeah. And COVID is such a such a great uh, thing for investors to see. What what are companies actually willing to pay for when they are pushed up against the wall and they are forced to make budgetary decisions? What actually continues to get funded? JFrog clearly continued to get funded. That give, that should give you some confidence that this is a must-have product, not a need-to-have product. The other thing to point out is post-coming public, spotless balance sheet, $500 million in cash, zero debt, and free cash flow positive. So this is a financially very strong company. For folks that are like listening to the show for a while, Brian, I mean, they, they know the SaaS model creates very high switching costs. It makes it difficult for customers to leave once they're in. We like to talk moats. Aside from kind of the standard software stuff, what do you see with this business? I think it's the standard software stuff, to be to completely <laughs> honest. I think that they have a very big eco uh, partnership uh, ecosystem. Uh, so their their products work directly with all of the big uh, cloud providers. They do have uh, technology partnerships with the likes of um, uh, Atlassian, uh, NetApp, uh, Pure Software, um, uh, Microsoft Azure, AWS, Google Cloud, uh, etc. They also work with dozens of develop within dozens of development environments. So whatever it's it, it caters to. The 
the needs of the developer. It's basically like you do what you want and we're going to tailor our product to fit on top of your current workflow. That creates some pretty big, uh, pretty big switching, switching costs, especially since this company is, is the first mover. And again, I think an overlooked thing that we, that, uh, that benefits Twilio is what would be the cost to a company to develop this technology on their own versus what is the cost to just buy from JFrog. Clearly, it's cheaper and faster and more effective to just buy from JFrog. We see that in the dollar-based net retention. Yeah. And I think if we're looking for a parallel that has nothing to do with software, it's like you can buy uh, you know, pre-made cabinet kits from Ikea or you can try to hire uh, you know, someone who works with wood to build you those cabinets to fit your kitchen. Both of them will probably work. One of them is probably going to take a little bit longer and be a lot more expensive. The other one fits out of the box and probably has some components that work that have, uh, you know, other people have built on top of them to work, you know, whether it's accessories or, you know, ways to store things in the cabinet. That's the benefit that a company like JFrog offers enterprise customers. That's an interesting analogy, Dylan, and I'll roll with it and just say, yeah, imagine you were a, imagine that you worked with wood in your day job and you still bought from another cabinet maker. You would do so because that one can do it cheaper than you can make it on your own. Sure. Great analogy. <laughs> you can tell that I'm going through the, the home renovation process right now, Ryan. Cabinets have lost meaning to me entirely with all the, the catalogs that I've been looking at. Um, what I like about this business is uh, the management and culture in particular. Um, we have a lot of co-founders, three, um, all of them still involved in the business. And I think the founding story is kind of interesting here, but let, let's profile some of these folks first, and then we'll get into that. Yep. So as you pointed out, all three co-founders currently still with the business and operating the roles of CTO, Chief Data Scientist, and CEO. Uh, Shlomi uh, Benheim, he is uh, the, the CEO of the company. Uh, he was previously the CEO of a company called Alpha CSP that was acquired. And his two other co-founders both worked alongside him at that company. So this trio has been together for a long time. And it's really great to see that not only did they found this company together, all three of them are still in the C-suite. And as we alluded to before, the company has been extremely conservative financially and hasn't had to raise a lot of capital. Because of that, the inside ownership percentages here are really impressive. The CEO owns 6%. The CTO, the chief data scientist owns 6% and the CTO owns 8%. That right there is 20% ownership just from the, the co-founders. Insiders in general, meaning the board of directors and other managers own another 33% on top of that. All told, insiders of this business hold 53% of shares outstanding. Impressive. Yeah, that is serious skin in the game. And one of the other things I like about this business is the the founding story. Um, so they, they've been around for over 10 years. They basically were born into the financial crisis. So I, I think that is probably why you see such a lean and efficient business now. I think it's a big part of that. But also, this was not a company that had easy access to funding. I was, I was watching an interview that Shlomi Benheim did, and he said, it took me four years to raise a Series A and three weeks to raise a Series D. And they were in relatively early in the DevOps world. It was, it was at a point where I don't think a lot of people really understood what that market looked like. And a lot of people thought it was too small to really warrant having some big money. And so early on, they had to do basically self-funding to, to get this thing off of the ground. And then they were able to progressively raise money um, through some outside funding. But I look at that and I say, they have been scrappy and they have been able to do it pretty lean for a while. 
And they've wound up with a lot of adversity along the way and have managed to build what is now over a $5 billion business. That's really impressive. And I, and I like what that possibly indicates for how this company can handle adversity in the future. I agree. Uh, some companies just have profitability and conservatism built into their DNA. And I like to see that this company struggled in the beginning and had to be extremely efficient with capital. You clearly see that scrappiness paying off today because the company is profitable, generating cash flow, and has an, a world of opportunity uh, ahead of it. Great to see. We have mentioned Twilio several times uh, during this podcast and talking about JFrog. I think one huge way that JFrog is different and possibly better um, than Twilio was when it was a much younger public company is the fact that it does not have a lot of customer concentration. This is a very diversified business. They are not overly reliant on any one customer. And if you backtrack and look at Twilio's stock performance, there is a steep drop-off that happens around the news that one of their major customers was going to be moving away from them. That's always a risk when you offer these types of tools. I think JFrog's insulated from a lot of that based on how their customers break down. They completely are. More than 5,800 customers that exist today, uh, including all of the big tech companies that we talked about before, including Spotify, Workday, Netflix, Atlassian, all 10 of the top 10 tech organizations. And it goes beyond that. Eight of the top 10 financial services companies, nine of the top 10 retailers, eight of the top 10 healthcare organizations, and seven of the top nine telecommunications companies. 75% of the Fortune 100 are JFrog customers, and their largest customer is 2% of revenue. Customer concentration, not an issue here at all. Yeah. And that's huge because it means that if someone does decide to make that move where they're like, you know, we, we've liked this tool. In fact, we like it so much that we figured out how to make it ourselves and we're going to do our own thing. They don't get immediately stung as a business. They're, they're well insulated from that risk. Um, and they have their hands in a lot of pots, which is like, well, we like to see it's the same thing that we preach with people and the individual stocks that they own. You know, you can apply that concept directly here. Yeah, and one question that I had when I before I started going in here was how big is the opportunity here? I mean, this seems like a really niche product to be uh, pushing out there. I was pleasantly surprised to say that the company said, again, the company said that they estimate their TAM at $22 billion. That's a big number, but it came from the company, so you know, discount accordingly. But IDC, they are a respectable third party. They did say that by 2024, they believe that the uh, opportunity for this company is somewhere around $18 uh, billion. Based on Q2 run weight, this company should do about $140 million-ish in revenue for the year. If you buy that potential in the $18 billions or even a order of magnitude lower than that, there's still lots of room for this company to run. Yeah. And if, if, you're, if you're factoring that revenue run rate into where they're currently valued, that puts them at about 40 times sales, which is hefty. You know, it's, it's definitely a rich valuation, Brian. But I think also, you know, we, we talk about it all the time with these software businesses. Really high margin. They're already showing that there's a clear path to profitability. They've been able to do it for some quarters. As they scale, I imagine that's only going to continue unless they're doing some heavy, heavy investment to grow the business. Um, and the customers stick around. The, the retention rates don't lie. It's one of the most important numbers we look at, and we really emphasize it for a reason. It signals so much strength for a business. Totally. This is a company that 
uh, I thought was going to trade at a big premium. It certainly did about 40 times sales. It's crazy to say this. That is a significant discount to some of its direct comparisons, uh, most notably a Zoom and Snowflake and even like Shopify. But yes, the market clearly sees quality here and they are paying up accordingly. So that to me is probably the biggest risk here. Again, I don't see customer concentration risk. Uh, I, I think that they are the first mover. I think that they have strong relationships. Relationships. I think they have lots of room to grow. I like the inside ownership. I like that the co-founders, there's a lot to like about this business. The biggest risk to me is that you're buying today, you're overpaying. Yeah. And, and a big part of that is so much of the story hinges on, can they grow this business to uh, one that does you know, 5x the revenue that it currently does? Um, we're looking at a company that has you know, just over $120 million in trailing 12-month revenue. That is not a big base. The growth numbers are always going to look really impressive when the denominator is that low. Can they keep that growth train moving? Um, the retention rates seem to signal yes, but if there are any hiccups along the way, man, that valuation is going to take a haircut. You got that right. And while we said that they are the pioneer, they do not have this marketplace themselves. Uh, they do call out some pretty big name competitors, including many of their partners and customers. So they call out Microsoft, uh, GitHub, uh, GitHub, Pivotal Software, uh, IBM, uh, Google, all competitors that offer similar, similar products. Clearly, JFrog is the leader and they have carved out a, a strong uh, competitive position for themselves that those companies are both competitors and customers, but still, you can't ever ignore big name companies like that. So, Brian, before we wind up talking about the other company that debuted and checking back in on Snowflake, um, where do you stand on JFrog? Is this a watch list stock for you? Is this something that you're considering buying, buying sometime soon? Yeah. I mean, this checks a lot of the boxes that I look for in a business. I usually do not buy directly after the uh, IPO, especially now when so many companies are coming public at just ridiculous, uh, ridiculously high evaluations. But this checks basically every box that I look for uh, in, in a business. So I'll be putting it on my watch list for sure. How about you, Dylan? It's definitely a watch list stock for me. As I start freeing up some more cash, uh, I'm going to be looking to put it to work. I think that's a nice way for me to put some guardrails on and say, you know, I'm going to wait a little while, let this thing ride, uh, and and kind of let the market figure out where it wants to value it, let some of the IPO hype die down. But this is definitely going uh, probably to the top five, 10 names on the watch list. Great. I think that that's appropriate. It's, a, <laughs> it's a definitely a high quality business. Speaking of watch list stocks, Brian, we talked about Snowflake at the end of August and it feels like months ago at this point, um, particularly because the news cycle has been so active for this company. So not only did the company go public, but they also had the, uh, the, the stamp of approval of some pretty well-heeled investors before they did. Warren Buffett. Warren <laughs> Buffett got into this company uh, at the IPO. And I believe the other big name was Mark Benioff, the founder and CEO uh, of Salesforce, and made a, a big purchase of the, this company. I mean, Warren Buffett, and it might not have been him, it might have been one of his lieutenants, but nonetheless, they bought Snowflake stock at the IPO price of 120, and that was at a valuation of 70 times sales. That was the IPO price. Now, Dylan, it didn't exactly stay at 70 times sales, did it? No, it did not. Uh, I wound up in the, the 300s at some point. Uh, I think it's down in the, the low twos now, but still a, a very rich, rich multiple even now. It's over 100 times trailing sales, uh, which is 
pricey. And there are a couple different ways you can look at this, Brian. You can say, well, you know, the, the folks that got those early shares from the investment bank must be pretty happy. Um, you could also make the argument that the, money, the company probably left some cash on the table. I think so. I mean, clearly, when the when the when the stock hit the public markets, I think it came at like two sixty or or two seventy. That was the first price that outside investors who who weren't able to participate in the IPO got in. So more than double uh, the price that Warren Buffett uh, bought in at at the IPO, and that really takes money away from the company. That is money that should have gone to the company, but went to people that bought in like the IPO. So. That's something that we've seen time and time again with new IPOs, especially this year. Yeah, and I saw Frank Slootman, the CEO of Snowflake, had some comments about this because this was a this is a question that came up a ton. You know, when when you see a pop like this, you're like, boy, there seems like a pretty big gap there. Um, you know, what do you make of that? And his point was basically, you're selling shares to big institutions; they are making large commitments. It's not like you and I who you know can put maybe a couple thousand bucks behind something. And there's a point where they stop being comfortable. Um, and they were trying to stick within that comfort zone for pricing. Um, there are a lot of critics of the IPO process that feel like it is a way to enrich some high net worth individuals uh, that investment banks have as clients and make sure that they are happy. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. There was definitely some room for them to up the ante on this. Um, there was kind of a perfect storm of excitement with this company, right? SaaS business, really impressive financials. And then you have Warren Buffett hopping into tech, which is like the friend who never goes out, <laughs> you know, deciding that they are going to join you guys uh, at the bar. And so and when you have all that coming, there's going to be a lot of excitement. You're going to see some crazy price movements. You could even call it a perfect blizzard of excitement, Dylan. <laughs> oh, boy. I hope the audience just groaned, Brian. <laughs> um, so, so does anything about what we saw with Snowflake in the first couple of days of it uh, being out on the public markets change your outlook on it, Brian? It doesn't change my outlook on the business. I think both of us came away extremely impressed with the business, uh, but the company was setting fire to capital extremely rapidly. So if I was forced to choose between JFrog and Snowflake, I'm going with JFrog. Its valuation is high, but more reasonable. It's also far closer. It, it, it's also already reached profitability and generating free cash flow. So to me, the big story on Wednesday was, hey, JFrog is public, not Snowflake. <laughs> That's good perspective to have. You know, nice to challenge the conventional wisdom there. Nice to uh, maybe find another narrative. And I'm always happy to have you on to do that, Brian. Uh, always great to be here. Love going through newly public companies. So fun. So fun. And I think we're going to have more. I don't think this is the end in 2020. I think we're going to have a couple more businesses come out. And when they do, we'll be doing a little rundown through their prospectus. Given these valuations, it's a great time to IPO if you have anything to do with SaaS. <laughs> Listeners, we're going to end things there. That does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. And if you're looking for more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.